I chose that hymn for the one phrase, his child and forever I am. And I hope you appreciate that more uh, this morning as we go through our passage that once you are a child of God, you are a child of God forever. And that um, he does whatever is necessary in our lives to, um, uh, to care for us, sometimes to discipline us, to bring us uh, into an even closer relationship and fellowship with him. So I have a couple of stories this morning about children and parents. And um, our passage this morning is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm sure if you read through the whole thing you won't find anything in there about children and parents. But um, nevertheless it reminded me of things that go on between children and parents. So 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, pardon me, chapter uh, 11. And we be, begin our uh, passage with verse 16, but we're going to get to that in a minute. When I was a young boy, I was uh, around 13 years of age, and I was having a rather difficult time at home, a difficult time with my mother in particular. And uh, it was all her fault, you know. I was 13, and she was at fault. She wasn't seeing things my way. And it started out on a Friday afternoon or Friday night, and the battle continued through Saturday and um, went to bed angry and came, I woke up Sunday morning. We went to church. There was tension uh, in the home, and the fellowship that I had enjoyed with her was gone. I was right. She was wrong. Why couldn't she see that? And to my 13-year-old mind, I was, um, uh, I was right. And so I kind of crawled into my shell in silence, and, uh, but my countenance showed everything that was going on, I'm sure. We went to church, and I'm sure that we glared at each other across the room uh, during each service. And um, after church, I had to ride home with her because she had the car, and uh, there was complete silence. She was immovable, and I was licking my wounds. Finally, she pulled into the driveway, and just as almost icing on the cake, she said to me, now you make sure you practice your piano, okay? I was taking piano lessons at that time, and the last thing I needed was for her to tell me one more thing to do. And so she went into the kitchen to fix Sunday dinner for me and for us. And um, I sat down at the piano. And I parked myself on the piano bench that afternoon and I took out my piano book and put it up on the, the piano to uh, complete the lesson for the day. And you know, each week you would get a new song, and each week you would have to go through it and practice it, and the teacher would determine whether you were good enough to go on to the next song. And so as I opened this new book, I creased the page, and I opened it, and I began to play. And uh, it happened to be that my lesson that week included an old African-American song that went like this. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. 
Glory. Hallelujah. And I played it in my bad mental states, and mom stuck her head around the corner. Um, and with a twinkle in her eye, she asked, what are you playing? And I hadn't seen the irony of the situation until then, and it finally struck me what I was playing, and, and we both burst out laughing. And uh, that tension was broken, and I was able to make up with mom and determine that she was probably right, especially if I wanted to eat lunch. <laughs> What did I really know about suffering and sorrow at 13 years old? Pretty much nothing. And my trouble was like any other teenage kid, it was common to man. I probably wasn't getting what I wanted. I wasn't getting my way. And so that to me was considered a trial and, and uh, sorrowful. But I didn't really know much, and what I did suffer, it's, it's normal, I would say, for any you know, child or 13-year-old to, to go through that. Most of you in your life, some of you are older than 13, and most of you have suffered at some point or other in your life uh, some trouble, some sorrow of some sort. And you've all suffered common sicknesses. You've all suffered colds and flu and things like that. You've cut yourself, you've bled, you've had scrapes, you've had bruises. Some of you have even had broken bones. Some of you have suffered through minor fender benders. And as you age, I hate to tell you this young people, but as you age, you're gonna enjoy more aches and pains uh, throughout your body. You're gonna have parts of your body you didn't know you had. And some of you have endured the loss of a job or financial setbacks. Some have endured family heartbreaks. And some of you have suffered the loss of loved ones. Um, some of you have undergone emergency surgeries. Some have been struck with cancer. Some have been struck with debilitating sicknesses. And many of these things we call accidents or tragedies, or illnesses. And yet the Bible teaches that no temptation or no trial has overtaken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able to endure. But with the trial, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Any testing, any trial that we face is something that is common. It's common to men. You're not alone. And it's good to know that in a time of trial. It's good to know that in a time of temptation. It's good to know that you're not alone. There are many, many others, probably millions of others, who are suffering at the same time uh, and the same kind of fate or some kind of uh, trial that you're facing. And we have promised that God takes into account your individual frailty. He understands you better than you understand yourself. And he understands what you're able to endure. And you say, well, sometimes it feels like it's just absolutely overwhelming. And yeah, it's true, it does feel like that sometimes. But he will not, he promises this, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. With 
the temptation or with the trial, He'll provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What the, the, the issue there is we need to be looking for that. We need to be looking for that way of escape that God has promised to us that we might be able to endure the suffering or the trial that we are currently going through or that we will go through in the future. Often when we have trials, we wallow in self-pity and we say, sometimes out loud and sometimes to the Lord, why me? Why me? And I think the question, as we've said before, is why not you? Why not you? If the Lord is allowing a trial in your life, what is He doing? He is certainly causing you to grow in maturity, but He is preparing you, as we learned back in 1 Corinthians and also at the beginning of uh, 2 Corinthians, He's preparing you for a ministry that you can have in comforting other people. And we'll see uh, at the end of this that that's precisely what happened with the Apostle Paul. But sometimes we, we become bitter. We lose sight of what God is doing in our lives, like I did that Sunday afternoon. And we sit down at the piano and we play. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows like Jesus. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And it's all focused on me. Glory, hallelujah. I'm not sure why that's in that. This morning we're going to look at the life of a man whose trouble far exceeds anything that we have ever endured, any of us have gone through, and we want to learn from him. His trials are not accidents, but they were a direct result of his service uh, for the Lord and his love for God's people. And as we consider his life this morning, perhaps this will change your outlook um, in, uh, when it comes to trials and your outlook in your service for the Lord. So in 2 Corinthians 11 and um, verse 16 is where we pick up our study. And we're looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul, as you know, is under attack uh, by false teachers who have drawn the Corinthians away from him and away from the Lord and the simplicity of following the Lord. Over the past few weeks, if you remember, we have uh, heard of some of the attacks against Paul. And I want you to imagine for a moment yourself in Paul's shoes. He had been sent by the Lord to the town of Corinth and he, to reach the Corinthian people with the gospel. And when he got there, he preached the gospel and people came to know the Lord. And a church was planted. And as he stayed there for some time, uh, helping them to grow in their faith in the Lord and their walk with the Lord, the Lord then directed him to leave Corinth and go to other places that had not yet heard the gospel. And so after Paul left uh, to, to go to another city, false teachers came in behind him at the town or the city of Corinth, and they began to disrupt the church. Perhaps there were some from within the church who, who sought to take control of the church. And the false teaching began, and the attacks against Paul were meant to undermine the trust that the Corinthians had in Paul and in the message that Paul had brought to them. And if the false teachers could undermine the apostle, they could undermine his message 
and they could persuade the Corinthians to follow after their false teaching. And that's what was happening. It was a power play that would have terrible spiritual consequences in the Corinthian church. So we read of their attacks. Um, I'll give you a couple of them here. I'm going to read uh, just for um, a different uh, version. Um, uh, chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says this, For some say Paul's letters are demanding and forceful, but in person, now this is an attack against him personally, in person he is weak and his speeches are worthless. So this was a frontal attack against Paul by the false teachers. They were undermining his message, and it went something like this. Paul, look at the guy, honestly. When you remember Paul and you see him, he was not much to look at. He was of small stature. He didn't, his presentation wasn't very good. He was not an orator. Why would you listen to a guy like that? After all, we are educated. We are the educated people. We're well-dressed. We're well-groomed. We have a much better message than Paul has to, had, uh, had to bring to you. Um, honestly, what he had to say was worthless. How could you Corinthians listen to such rubbish? We have the truth. Listen to us. And so that was the attack against Paul. And then if they turned from the message Paul brought to them, Paul said their devotion to Christ would shrivel up and would wither away because what Paul had presented to them was the truth. And if you forsake the truth, there's nothing left but a lie. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, he says this, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, that is, shriveled up. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you received, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. So the false teachers had set up shop in Corinth. They deceived the believers into thinking they had a superior message than Paul. And they were fooling or deceiving the Corinthians into believing in a different Jesus, a different spirit, um, and a different gospel message. And Paul said, look, you're deceived. Just like Eve was deceived in the Garden of Eden, so you have been deceived by these false teachers. In fact, he actually states to them that, that the, um, uh, the, the foundation of the message that these guys were bringing was really satanic. He said, look, they appear to you as angels of light, just like Satan appears as an angel of light. We often think of Satan as a caricature of, uh, you know, some kind of a red body with a tail and a, a pitchfork. He doesn't come that way. Somebody once said, and I may not quote this quite right, but somebody said something like this, that, that the most dangerous time uh, that a believer can have is when he, when he sees Satan as a person dressed in a three-piece suit with a Bible in his hand. And very often it's the preachers and the teachers who are satanic in what they say, and the Corinthians unfortunately uh, believed what they were saying. Paul plainly speaks in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, these people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. 
But I'm not surprised, he said, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants, he's saying that the false teachers are Satan's servants, uh, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. So in chapter 11, verse 16, Paul starts off by saying, look, these guys that you're listening to, they are fake. Do you remember the magicians in uh, Moses' day who stood before Pharaoh? And Moses had a message from God to release the people of Israel. God's message to Pharaoh was, let my people go. And Pharaoh, and, um, Pharaoh didn't want to listen, didn't want to hear. And Moses was given by God supernatural power and there were fake teachers, false teachers, false prophets who were there. Egyptian magicians who tried to fake the things that uh, um, Moses was doing. And uh, they were magicians, deceitful workers, imitators, just like these people, these false teachers here at Corinth. And Paul is speaking about false teachers, false apostles. And Paul, as he thinks about what is going on at the church at Corinth, he shudders to think that the Corinthians are so quick to believe what these guys are saying. And he is burning with indignation. You say, well, it's not good to, to, be, to be filled with wrath. Yes, it is. There are times when it is absolutely right and proper to be filled with righteous indignation about what Satan is doing to dear saints and what false teachers are doing to deceive people. Absolutely correct to be filled, as Paul was, burning with indignation that the false teachers had led the Corinthians astray. So in the, in the last half of chapter 11, Paul is now going to stand up and he's going to defend himself and to defend his ministry. And as he does this, as he thinks about doing this and as he thinks about what he's about to write, he thinks this is just foolish that I have to sit here with a pen in hand and say the things that I'm about to say to you. You, Corinthians, of all people, know me. You know what, who I am. You know what I've done for you. You know that I led you to Christ. And you know that I taught you the word of God. And yet they've been deceived. And so they had listened to fools. And they had become like them. And so Paul says, okay, I will come down to your level and I will speak as a fool um, so that I might rebuke you and bring you back to the Lord. That's essentially what he's saying. So let's take a look at verse 16. <clears throat> I say again, let no one think, of, think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. That's, you know, he's doesn't really believe they're wise, but he's, he's saying it that way. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage. You put up with it. They're bringing you into bondage. If one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. 
But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. So now what follows is a list of Paul's accomplishments. If I were to ask you to take a pen and paper right now and write out for me a list of your accomplishments for Jesus Christ as a believer, what would you write? What are the things that you would put down on the paper? Um, what would you say? Many of you would list, well, you know, I, I can think back at all of the people that I witnessed to in my life. I, I've, I've written uh, to people letters, uh, sharing the gospel with them. I've talked to people face to face. Um, I've preached in the open air. Those are some of the things, it's almost like a resume, right? You know, if you're looking for, for a job, you write down all the things that you've accomplished. So Paul is going to write down all the things that he accomplished. And so you would think that he would write things like that. You might say, hey, I've been a Sunday school teacher for many, many years. I've preached before congregations. I've taught Sunday school classes. I've taught adult Bible classes. I've taught in the home. Um, I've shared the gospel with my own family, my children. Um, so what else can I think about that, that I've done for the Lord? Oh yeah, I've discipled other uh, believers. And uh, I've, I've done that for years. Or you could write about the, the, the months or the years of your ministry on the service that you've put in for the Lord. Paul could have done that. He could have listed, listed all the things that happened to him in his missionary journeys. He could have told stories about churches that he planted he could have told of people whose lives were impacted by his ministry. But that's not what he does. And yet he's boasting about his service for the Lord. Instead, if we look at this list, he speaks only of the sufferings that he endured for the gospel and for the Lord's sake. Only of his hardships. Only of how he was deprived. And Paul is going to speak about his suffering. But why does he do this? Why does he do this for the Corinthians? Why does he write this uh, to them as, as, a, as a means of trying to persuade the Corinthians that they've been listening to false teachers? Why does he talk about all of his failures? Well, I'm going to illustrate this with a story. Many of you have heard the story or know more details about the story than I'm going to share. Um, but very often in teaching, um, you take a person from where they're at, let's say a child knows his numbers, he can count to 10, and you want to teach him addition. And so you, he's already got the basics down, and so once he's got the numbers down, you can start teaching him you know, one plus one equals two, and so on and so forth. So by illustrating what Paul is going to say, I, I'm hoping that this will help you to understand why Paul says what he says, why Paul writes what he writes. So here's the story. When a woman is pregnant, she suffers, and she suffers a great deal. I cannot speak from experience, but I can speak from observation. First, she may endure months, weeks or months, of morning sickness. She may suffer sleeplessness and excessive tiredness. Add to that things like heartburn, indigestion, urinary issues, 
back aches, headaches, cramping, her legs and her feet may swell, her blood pressure may increase. She is very likely, as the hormones change in her body, to go through uh, an enormous amount of um, emotional change and definitely substantial physical changes. As she approaches the delivery date, she may suffer um, from uh, fake uh, pain. I mean, it's real pain, but it's, it's fake delivery pain. Braxton Hicks, I think they call it, right? And uh, this, this is the, the birth pangs leading up to the birthday. And they become more frequent and they become more intense. And it's part of the suffering that she endures leading up to the birth. During the delivery, a woman may endure significant distress as she feels the pain of childbirth. The contractions may become so intense that she cries out in her labor as she finally gives birth to a baby son or a baby daughter. Her pain is real. Her suffering can be intense. And as I say, I have not experienced it, but I have witnessed it seven times with my own children being born. And I can only imagine, as I look down at Krista as she was giving birth to these children, the, the excruciating pain that she suffered as she delivered each child. Now, that's not to put you off having children, by the way. But it is something that a woman endures uh, in delivering a child. And then that's followed, and the scripture tells us this, it's followed by joy. Um, at the healthy birth of a child, as the mother takes the child to her breast and, and uh, nurses the child, there's a quick release of pain, and, and there's the wonder of holding another life in your arms, and she quickly forgets the pain that she suffered. All that's gone. All that's in the past. Now she has the joy of holding this little loved one in her arms. Well, soon the time comes when you take that precious baby home. And that's when a different kind of stress takes over. And you want to be the best parent that you can be. And so the mom nurses and bathes and clothes and feeds the baby. And then as parents, you make sure that your child is safe and protected. You steer the child away from danger and you provide every good thing for your child. And both parents are active in their roles of nurturing, caring for their ch children. And parents, you know this, if you've had children, you work hard, don't you? You work very hard to raise that little one. You know, I look at nature, and I see so many animals out there that, you know, they're born, and boom, they're up on their legs, and they're, you know, kind of on their own. You go, wow, <laughs> That's, that just looks so easy. <laughs> Why couldn't my kids be like that, you know? But it's hard work. You work hard to make sure there's a roof over their heads. You make sure they have a warm bed to sleep in. You make sure they have enough clothes to wear and food to eat. And you cook and you wash and you wash and you wash and you fold and you pick up after them. It's real work. It's hard work. In fact, sometimes both parents have to go out to work in order to pay to maintain this little kid that came into their house. 
to pay the bills. It's, it's expensive to raise kids in the Bay Area. It really is. And then you have the joy of teaching them their ABCs and one, two, threes, and you sing with them and you play with them and, and uh, you begin to teach them right from wrong and you lovingly correct them when they go astray. You teach them Bible verses. You teach them things about God. And you're good parents. You provide for all their needs. You provide a healthy and safe environment. You get them involved in sports. You get them involved in music lessons. You get them involved in every activity you can possibly think of. And you're now an Uber driver with no pay. And you are driving them everywhere at all hours of the day and night. And it's, uh, you, you make sure that you are there for their music recitals and for their uh, soccer games and their baseball games and their volleyball games and every game that they can think of being involved in. And uh, you meet with their teachers and you meet with their counselors and you make sure they're doing their homework and it's work, 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 work. And most of what you do for your children is done behind the scenes and quite honestly, they never see it and most of them never really appreciate what sacrifices you've made for them until they become parents. And they begin to say, oh, so that's what it's like to have children. <laughs> many of you have deprived yourselves in many ways in order to raise your children and to give them everything they need. You've worked harder and you've worked longer than you would have had you had not had children at all. You've taken on extra jobs. You've endured sleeplessness. And you've said no to a thousand things that you wanted to do in order to do things with them and for them. You've taken care of your children. But you did it for what reason? You did it because you loved them. And you wanted what was best for them. You should be heroes in their eyes. You should be heroes. They should be applauding you. But it's not always the case. Now, the story goes on, and this is a true story, that I want you to imagine that you've done all of that. You gave birth to the child. You went through all of that pain and sorrow and suffering to, to bring the child to birth. And you spent all of that time doing all of those things for your child. And she's now, you know, the ripe old age of 15 years old. And she's in her mid-teens. She's at school. And one of her teachers befriends her and begins to gain her trust and confidence. And the teacher is an authority figure in your daughter's eyes. And uh, you think, well, she can be trusted. Little by little, your daughter lets her guard down and the teacher begins to raise questions in her mind about you as a parent and about your parenting. And the teacher begins to say, you know, if you were my daughter, life would be so much easier for you. You would, be, you would have freedoms that you don't currently have at your home. Your parents are too strict. Your parents are too rigid. They're not letting you be all that you can be as an individual and as a person. If you were my child, you wouldn't be stunted like you are now. 
you are so naive to believe that your parents are doing what's best for you. You don't even see that your parents aren't really that good for you at all. They're hindering your progress. They are not intelligent people. They're holding you back. They probably don't even want you to go to college. They don't want you to learn, to be successful, to be somebody, but I am educated. I will give you special teaching, special training, and I will not hold you back like they do. I will give every, you everything you need and everything you want. Under my care, you will excel. But in order to do this, you've got to make a break with your parents. Why don't you come and live with me? And with her charm, the teacher deceives your daughter. Now imagine you have a daughter like this. Imagine this is your child, and it's all going on behind the scenes, and you're not aware of it. At first it's very subtle, but soon it's as if your daughter has become hypnotized by the teacher. She has beguiled your daughter, just like Satan beguiled Eve in the Garden of Eden. And one day your daughter packs all of her belongings into her backpack and she goes to live with the teacher and she abandons you. She wants nothing to do with such foolish parents as she has. This is a parent's worst nightmare. It's like having a sword go through your heart and then have it twisted inside once it's there. And as I tell you the story, how do you feel? How does it make you feel? How would you respond if this happened to you? Your daughter has been led astray by a Pied Piper. And the story is not made up. This happened to our oldest daughter. And nothing could have prepared us for it. And when it happened, it wasn't that she turned from us, but it was like everybody turned against us. And to this day, we suffer the loss of this precious relationship and fellowship that we once had with her. And once a person is deceived, it is very hard to undo the damage that has been done. Now, of course, I've left out many painful details. Many of you know far more details of this story than I share. Most of you already knew this story. But I wanted to share it with you again because this relates to this passage in a very real way. And you have to understand in the context, this is what was happening to the Apostle Paul. The turmoil that he was going through in his heart was seeing his own spiritual children being led astray by the deceitfulness of false teachers who had come into Corinth while Paul was away preaching the gospel to others who had not yet heard. And it's heart-wrenching to think of what was happening to the Corinthians. It was Paul who endured the labor pains, bringing them to Christ in the first place. 
He brought them to spiritual birth. It was Paul who sacrificed uh, of his own life, and of, I mean, he didn't give his life up, but of, of the things that he could have been doing uh, in bringing them to maturity. He sacrificed so much as he helped them grow in their faith in the Lord. It was Paul who, who worked tirelessly, labored tirelessly night and day so as not to become a financial burden on them. It was Paul who had the goal of bringing them to full maturity so that he might present them to Christ as a chaste virgin. That's what he says. Only to find them go astray into sin and, and to turn against him. Nobody could prepare him for the loss like this. It's heart-wrenching to read Paul, what Paul writes next. But what he's trying to do, he's trying to awaken the Corinthians, um, and he says, look, I'm writing as a fool, meaning that it's sheer folly for me to have to write these things to you because you know me. You know who I am. You know what I've done for you. You should, of all people, you should know better. They should have been defending his character, and they should have been rebuking the false teachers because of all that Paul had done in bringing them to birth and raising them as his spiritual children. I can't tell you the difference that it would have made in our lives if our daughter had stood up against this teacher and had simply said, you are a liar. My parents love me. What you're doing is wicked. What you're saying is a lie. And if the Corinthians had done the same thing at Corinth when the false teachers came in and said, you are lying to us. You are telling us a lie. Paul loves us and he gave himself, had given himself uh, to them. But instead, they listened to the false and deceptive teachers who were turning them to another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. And Paul's heart is breaking for them, but his love drives him to remind them of the stark contrast between what it cost him in his service to them and these Johnny-come-lately false teachers who had done absolutely nothing for them except to make them go astray. So the false teachers were boasting about how great they were, how wonderful they were. And it's kind of like the boasting that goes on in, in, even in Christian circles today. Many people boast today, oh, well, I have a Master of Divinity from Harvard University. I just want you to know that. And then I went and I got my PhD at uh, Yale, and I just want you to know that too. And I sit on the board of directors of nine businesses and ten ministries. And, of course, i am uh, published many works, and they're all in print. And, and people boast like this today. And, and we applaud people as if these are the things that matter. But it's not the way Paul boasts. In fact, he does quite the opposite. Let's take a look at it. And um, we'll begin in verse 22. So... Notice that he writes these things in rapid fire, um, and he's just simply saying, look, compare my life to the lives of these false teachers. And he says, are they Hebrews? Well, yes, they were. So am I. Are they Israelites? Well, yes, they were. So am I. And uh, Philippians, Paul says he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. He was actually a, 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 a Hebrew of the Hebrews, quite honestly. 
Are they the seed of Abraham? Yes. Well, so am I. So now that that's out of the way, these qualifications did not make Paul an apostle. The fact that he was a Jew, that he was an Israelite, or that he was a seed of Abraham. That didn't make him an apostle. And it certainly didn't make them apostles. The fact of the matter that is in Christ, when a person is in Christ, none of these things matter. National distinctions are of no significance. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In Colossians 3, he says this, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, uh, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So what he's saying in those passages is that heritage, nationality, former religion are not the things that count as far as our standing with God is concerned. Neither do they give reason for boasting as far as an apostle is concerned. Now Paul lists just the things that he suffered. He brought them to birth. He raised them for Christ. The false teachers did nothing for them except to lead them astray. Are they ministers of Christ? Well, that's what they claim, but they certainly weren't because Paul had clearly said earlier they're ministers of Satan. In other words, they, they are teachers uh, and their, their origin of is satanic. He says, well, okay, you want me to speak as a fool? Here I am. I am more of a minister of Christ than they have they suffered? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. No, they had not. What had they done to bring the Corinthians to spiritual birth? Nothing. What had they done to raise the Corinthians to spiritual maturity? Nothing. Had Paul suffered? Absolutely. And here's the list of his accomplishments. In labors more abundant... Notice he's not focused on his accomplishments the way we think, but on his suffering and weakness. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Notice the, plur, the plural, in stripes, in prisons, in deaths often. Beaten five times by the Jews with 39 lashes. Most of you know that the Jewish um, discipline could, did allow them to, uh, to strike a person with lashes um, 40 times less one so that they didn't kill him. <laughs> but five times he was beaten with 39 lashes by the Jews. Beaten three times with rods, that would have to be by the Romans, which was totally illegal, by the way, because he was a Roman citizen. And a Roman citizen was not allowed to be beaten. And yet he was beaten by rods three times. Stoned one time, shipwrecked three times, a night and a day floating at sea, likely after one of the shipwrecks, many journeys, perils of waters, that's likely crossing unbridged rivers on his journeys uh, to preach the gospel, perils of robbers, the, the roads were known for, for their bandits along the way. And so there were perils of robbers, perils of my own countrymen, that's the Jews, perils of the Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, and that's probably in the open ocean, perils among false brethren, such as the Corinthians um, um, were facing, and also in Galatia, in weariness, Paul wore himself out 
for the gospel's sake. And then after he wore himself out making tents to make sure that he had enough money to live off of, he then ministered. In toil, in sleeplessness often, uh, no doubt he worked long, long hours into the night and he rose early again the next morning. In hunger and thirst, at times he went without so that others might have. In fastings often, in cold, no doubt sleeping in the open air. In nakedness, that is without a wardrobe, he literally lived out of his suitcase if he had one or a knapsack or something like that. And his daily concern for all the churches. Now, this is an interesting thing. The book of Acts is a book of history. And if you look at the book of Acts, it's a history of the life of the Apostle Paul and the early church. If you try to match all of these up with incidents in the life of Paul, you couldn't do it. Okay? Because the book of Acts has some of these things only. It does not have all of this. And so what this tells us is that in the book of Acts, there's a lot that is unsaid. There's a lot that Paul went through that we don't know about. But he lists it here only. We might know of a shipwreck, or maybe two, but he lists more. We might know of one beating, but there's more. So the book of Acts is not a full account or a comprehensive account of what took place in the early church. This gives us a little clue into the fact that there's a whole lot more behind the scenes. It's a summary in the book of Acts. But the list shows how much Paul loved the Corinthians. And like a loving parent, Paul is trying to awaken his children to realize that he did not withhold anything from them. Their birth, their growth came at an awful cost to him. And it seems that in just a moment of time, they were deceived by false promises made by false teachers and they were led astray. And Paul's heart is breaking for them. And as I said earlier, deception is so hard to undo. And it's nearly impossible to dislodge a lie from a person's heart once it has taken root there. But with God, all things are possible. Paul had not boasted in his accomplishments. He had boasted in his weaknesses. So the next question he asks is this. Who is weak? Paul had left the false teachers in the dust when it came to weakness because they had done none of these things. You know, the interesting thing is Paul also describes here when he says who is weak. Um, let me get to that verse here. Yeah, he says, who is weak and I am not weak. What he's saying here is this. Because of the suffering that Paul went through, he was able to come alongside of believers and weep with those who wept, rejoice with those who rejoiced, understand the weaknesses that they were going through, the suffering that they were going through, because he had gone through far more than they had. And so, so God allowed Paul to go through these things that he might become an even more effective minister of the gospel, an effective minister to believers, just like we learned in the beginning of 2 Corinthians. But he says this next, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. This is what I said at the beginning, that there is a right place for righteous indignation, and this is it. 
Here these false teachers had come in and had warped the minds and hearts of the Corinthian believers, and Paul was filled with righteous indignation against what they had done uh, to his spiritual children. Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There is a place for righteous anger to those who cause children to stumble and fall and spiritual children to stumble and fall. There is a place for righteous anger against those who would call, cause believers to be deceived. They are the enemies of God and God will repay. In Nahum chapter 1 we read this, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. And these false teachers were the enemies of God. And Paul finishes this chapter with a statement and with a story. First of all, the statement. In verse 30 he says, If I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. And so Paul was not boasting like we boast. He was not boasting in his greatness. He was boasting in his infirmity. Why? It's because that's the person whom God uses. He uses the weak and the meek and the despised and the rejected. And God's power is seen in those who have suffered for his sake. Paul says later in chapter 12, and I'm sorry Matt if I'm taking away some of your thunder from next week, Paul says this, that God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore most gladly I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then... I am strong. That's the statement. Now the story. He has one final story in this chapter, and if you look at it, you kind of think, well, what is this? How does this fit? And the story goes something, well, let's just read it. He says, In Damascus, the governor under uh, Eretus the king was guarding the city of Damas uh, Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And you go, what on earth does this have to do with anything? Uh, and so you have to go back to Acts and look at when this took place. And this was actually at the very beginning of Paul's ministry. If you remember, Paul was actually like the false teachers. Did you know that? He was a Jew. And he had gone to the, the uh, synagogue in Jerusalem and had asked for papers to give him the authority to arrest Christians uh, who were in Damascus. And he was on his way to Damascus with letters in hand, authority in hand, and uh, he was breathing out threats and murders, it says in the scripture. And on his way, he was going to disrupt Christianity, and he was going to bring an end to this Jesus whom they loved. And it was at that time, on the road to Damascus, 
that God stopped him in his tracks. There was a bright light. Paul fell to his knees and heard the, the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Because he didn't recognize the voice. And he says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. And it was at that moment that Paul had a transformation in his life. And the one that he hated became his savior. The one he was against became the one he was for. And the message that he was trying to squelch was the message that he began to preach. This happened in Damascus. And he was taken um, by Ananias. And uh, they were a little afraid of Paul because they knew what he was up to. They knew that he had letters in hand to uh, bring the Christians to uh, Jerusalem, dragging them there, uh, obviously to kill them. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake, for my name's sake. At 13 years old, I sat down at the piano and I played my music lesson. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. I'm ashamed to think that I even thought that I had trouble at 13. I did not know then what suffering was. And in comparison to the life of the Apostle Paul, I do not know what suffering is now. But if we do suffer for Christ's sake, or for the Gospel's sake, we can look back at the life of the Apostle Paul and realize that it is God who is at work in our lives to use us, and that we suffer for His name's sake because He uses the foolish things, weak people, things, and, and the people the, uh, who are despised. Why does He do that? So that no flesh shall glory in His presence, and that He will receive all of the praise and all of the glory. I don't know what ultimately happened in the church of Corinth, whether they all forsook the false teachers and turned with their whole heart back to the Lord. But I know that Paul made this appeal that he might remind them of what it cost him to bring them to the Savior who gave himself for them. Jesus gave his all for them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and bled and died for us. And we thank you for servants of the Lord who also have done the same for us. And Lord, we do not forget where we came from. We think of Paul and the longing of his heart as the saints at Corinth were confused and deceived by false teachers. And we cry out to you, Lord, that you might protect the believers here. You might protect the saints. Lord, protect us from uh, the evil one. And we pray, Lord, that if we do suffer, if we do have trouble in our lives, that we might see clearly through the trouble what you're doing behind the scenes in our lives to make us not only comforters to others, but Lord, that, that your 
that you might receive the glory uh, through using weak vessels. And we pray that we might be weak vessels to be used of God, that you might receive all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just in light of time, we'll, we'll end the uh, meeting now.